Welcome to this Dragonlance Saga Gaming Dungeons and Dragons 5th Edition episode. It is Bakukul, New Cult the 6th. My name is Adam, and I'm running a Dungeons and Dragons 5th Edition Dragonlance Shadow of the Dragon Queen game. That is a mouthful. So I thought it'd be fun to read the free basic rules aloud and discuss them with a live audience, because it's Friday night, I got an hour or so to kill, and I wanted to. <laughs> I never feel confident about 5th edition game rules, even though they're the most simple of every edition ever. I still, you know, just because I'm new, you know? I don't know. Anyway, I'd like to take a moment and thank the members of this channel and invite you to consider becoming a member. You can always pick up Dragonlance Gaming Materials using my affiliate links. Both of those are in the description below. Chris, how you doing? Yeah, I've had a lot of fun dungeon mastering 5th edition, but I think it has nothing to do with 5th edition. It just has to do with, I like role-playing, <laughs> you know? I like I like embodying non-playing characters. I like challenging players and setting up potential experiences and stuff, so... I don't know. <clears throat> we left in Chapter 3 classes on the Druid. So let's pick up right there. Holding high a gnarled staff wreathed with holly. An elf summons the fury of the storm and calls down explosive bolts of lightning to smite the torch-carrying orcs who threaten her forest. Crouching out of sight on a hill-high tree branch in the form of a leopard, a human peers out of the jungle at a strange construction of a temple of evil elemental air, keeping a close eye on the cultists' activities. Swinging a blade formed of pure fire, a high elf charges into a mass of skeleton soldiers, sundering the unnatural magic that gives the foul creatures their mocking semblance of life. Whether calling on the elemental forces of nature or emulating the creatures of an animal world, druids are an embodiment of nature's resilience, cunning, and fury. They claim no mastery over nature. Instead, they see themselves as extensions of nature's indomitable will. Hey, Danny, thanks for joining live. What's up, Solid Company? How you doing? Power of Nature Druids revere nature above all, gaining their spells and other magical powers either from the force of nature itself or from a nature deity. Many druids pursue a mystic spirituality of transcendent union with nature rather than devotion to a divine entity, while others serve gods of wild nature, animals, or elemental forces. The ancient druidic traditions are sometimes called the Old Faith, in contrast to the worship of gods in temples and shrines. Druid spells are oriented towards nature and animals, the power of tooth and claw, of sun and moon, of fire and storm. Druids also gain the ability to take on animal forms, and some druids make a particular study of this practice, even to the point when they prefer the animal form to their natural form. Hey, old man, how you doing, man? John, what is up? Uh, when am I playing online next, John? Tomorrow. Tomorrow afternoon, we are picking back up with our Shadow of the Dragon Queen adventure. Right now, we're one character down because he's sick. But other than that, I think, I suspect, everyone else is going to be there. And we're going to be kicking some tukus and doing a little fishing. <laughs> Preserve the balance. For druids, nature exists in a precarious balance. The four elements that make up a world, air, earth, fire, and water, must remain in equilibrium. If one element were to gain power over the others, the world could be destroyed, drawn into one of the elemental planes and broken apart into its component elements. Thus, druids oppose cults of elemental evil and others who promote one element to the exclusion of others. 
Druids are also concerned with the delicate ecological balance that sustains plant and animal life, and the need for civilized folk to live in harmony with nature, not in opposition to it. Druids accept that which is cruel in nature, and they hate that which is unnatural, including aberrations, such as beholders and mind flayers, and undead, such as zombies and vampires. Druids sometimes lead raids against such creatures, especially when the monsters encroach on the druid's territory. Druids are often found guarding sacred sites or watching over regions of unspoiled nature. But when a significant danger arises, threatening nature's balance or the lands they protect, Druids take on a more active role in combating the threat as adventurers. You know, one thing that I, I've thrown in two... Oh, I'm sorry, John. I've established players for this one. Um, I have... Uh, I, I put out two questionnaires, basically like, uh, you know, survey questions, like uh, choose one of the following. And it's about uh, which edition people like the most of uh, Dungeons and Dragons. And second edition wins out every single time, I think. I have to look at the very first one I did, but I know second edition won in this uh, newest one poll I ran. What I want to do this coming Halloween is run through the second edition um, Sithicus campaign uh, about Lord Soth, the Knight of the Black Rose, I think it's called, or When Black Roses Bloom is what it's called. I want to run through that in October, so I think that'll be a lot of fun. Creating a Druid. When, oh, and here, I, I want to ask you guys while I'm reading this. Assuming that you would ever play a 5th edition game, if you haven't or are not interested, assuming you have or you want to, what's your favorite character class combination that you would be able to make in a Dragonlance campaign? Let me know in the chat. Creating a Druid. When making a Druid, consider why your character has such a close bond with nature. Perhaps your character lives in a society where the old faith still thrives, or was raised by a druid after being abandoned in the depths of a forest. Perhaps your character had a dramatic encounter with the spirits of nature, coming face to face with a giant eagle or direwolf and surviving the experience. Maybe your character was born during an epic storm or a volcanic eruption, which was interpreted as a sign that becoming a druid was part of your character's destiny. Have you always been an adventurer as part of your druidic calling? Or did you first spend time as a caretaker of a sacred grove or spring? Perhaps your homeland was befouled by evil, and you took up an adventuring life in hopes of finding a new home or purpose. Quick build. You can make a druid quickly by following these suggestions. First, wisdom should be your highest ability score, followed by constitution. Second, choose the hermit background. And you can see the different features that you gain and proficiency bonuses you have per level. You actually get to cast spells immediately, which is kind of cool. Class features. As a druid, you gain the following class features. Hit points. Hit dice 1d8 per druid level. Hit points at first level 8 plus your constitution modifier. Hit points at higher levels 1d8 or 5 plus your constitution modifier per druid level after first. Proficiencies. Uh, light armor, medium armor, shields. Druids do, will not wear armor or shields made of metal. Weapons. Clubs, daggers, darts, javelins, maces, quarterstaffs, scimitars, sickles, slings, spears. Tools, Herbalism Kit, Saving Throw, Intelligence, Wisdom, Skills, Choose from Two, Arcana, Animal Handling, Insight, Medicine, Nature, Perception, Religion, and Survival. Equipment, to start with the following equipment, in addition to the equipment granted on your background, a wooden shield or a, any simple weapon, a scimitar or any simple melee weapon, leather armor or an explorer's pack, and a druidic focus. Druidic. 
You know Druidic, the secret language of Druids. You can speak the language and use it to leave hidden messages. You and others who know this language automatically spot such a message. Others spot the message's presence with a successful DC-15 wisdom perception check, but can't decipher it without magic. I do want to say, everyone, um, if you haven't checked out Old Men Rolling Dice, their YouTube channel, they're actually running... Um, DL, they ran through DL1, 2, and 3 uh, from Dragonlance in Advanced Dungeons & Dragons, which is pretty dope. Uh, oh, I didn't know you finished 3. That's cool. So if you like those, check them out. Hey, Goldman, how you doing? All right, John, I will uh, put a pin in it. When I start calling, uh, put, I'll put out a message in the, in the um, uh, community tab of my YouTube channel, and it won't be until, like, you know, September. But I'll put out a message there, and I'll, I'll keep a spot for you if you want to do that. Human fighter, nice. Dude, Gilthanus was great. I, I think he's, he's underrated because, you know, he wasn't much of a player player character. You know, he was always like, you attack him on as another player's sort of second character, or you just have him run as an NPC. But he's always kind of cool. So, anyway, yeah, no problem, man. Old Men Rolling Dice, they do all sorts of games. So, if you guys are into role-playing, first of all, if you're not, what are you doing on this channel? And if you are, you should check them out. All right, spellcasting. Drawing on the divine essence of nature itself, you can cast spells to shape the essence to your will. See Chapter 10 for the general rules of spellcasting and Chapter 11 for the druidic spell list. Cantrips. At first level, you know two cantrips of your choice from the druidic spell list. You'll learn additional druid cantrips of your choice at higher levels, as shown in the cantrips known column of the druid table. Preparing and casting spells. The druid table shows how many spell slots you have to cast your spells of first level and higher. To cast one of these druid spells, you must expend a slot of the spell's level or higher. You regain all expended spell slots when you finish a long rest. You prepare the list of druid spells that are available for you to cast, choosing from the druid spell list. When you do so, choose a number of druid spells equal to your wisdom plus modifier, I'm sorry, wisdom modifier plus your druid level, minimum of one spell. The spells must be of a level for you to have spell slots. For example, if you're a third level druid, you have four first level and two second level spell slots. With a wisdom of 16, you list, your list of prepared spells can include six spells of first or second level in any combination. If you prepare the first level spell Cure Wounds, you can cast it using a first level or second level slot. Casting the spell doesn't remove it from your list of prepared spells. You can also change your list of prepared spells when you finish a long rest. Preparing a new list of druid spells requires time spent in prayer and meditation. At least one minute per spell level for each spell on your list. Spellcasting Ability Wisdom is your spellcasting ability for your druid spells, since your magic draws upon your devotion and attunement to nature. You use your wisdom whenever a spell refers to your spellcasting ability. In addition, you use your wisdom modifier when, you, when setting the saving throw DC difficulty class for a druid spell you cast and when making an attack roll with one. The spell save DC equals 8 plus your proficiency bonus plus your wisdom modifier. Spell attack modifier is your proficiency bonus plus your wisdom modifier. Ritual casting. You can cast a druid spell as a ritual if that spell has a ritual tag and you have the spell prepared. Spell casting focus. You can use a druidic focus, see chapter 5 equipment, as a spell casting focus for your druid spells. Sacred plants and wood. 
A druid holds certain plants to be sacred, particularly alder, ash, birch, elder, hazel, holly, juniper, mistletoe, oak, rowan, willow, and yew. Druids often use such plants as part of a spellcasting focus, incorporating lengths of oak or yew of spring of mistletoe. Uh, similarly, a druid uses such woods to make other objects, such as weapons and shields. Yew is associated with death and rebirth, so weapon handles for scimitars or sickles might be fashioned from it. Ash is associated with life and oak with strength. These woods make excellent halves or whole weapons, such as clubs or quarterstaffs, as well as shields. Alder is associated with air, and it might be used for thrown weapons such as darts or javelins. Druids from regions that lack the plants described here have chosen other plants to take on similar uses. For example, a druid of a desert region might use the yucca tree and cactus plants. I really like that. It's a pure role-playing reference, but whenever you, you're so into your character that you're only using resources that have meaning in meaningful ways... That adds so much more to any type of campaign, in my personal opinion. And even in real life, and as a, a designer, um, fonts are created for specific reasons, historically. They, they have meaning behind them in the era that they were created, why they were created, the letter forms and the letter shapes. I use that information and apply it to clients' design work even when I explain to them why, it doesn't really matter to them, but to know that I had considered the, the history of the type being used actually means that, you know, not only can they, you know, trust on me to, to be historically accurate or um, uh, conceptually accurate, but it also means that I'm a thinking conceptual designer rather than someone just trying to put out a pretty design. And though it doesn't mean I make any more money, it does mean that I care about my craft, you know? And it's just those little ideas I find endlessly fascinating. Savage, how are you doing? Thanks for joining. Andrew, what is up? Starting a uh, wild shape. Starting at second level, you can use your action to magically assume the shape of a beast that you have seen before. You can use this feature twice. You regain expended uses when you finish a shorter long rest. Your druid level determines the beasts you can transform into, as shown in the beast shapes table. At second level, for example, you can transform into any beast that has a challenge rating of one-fourth or lower that doesn't have a flying or swimming speed. Beasts. And it just gives you an example, like wolf, crocodile, giant eagle. You can stay in beast shape for a number of hours equal to half your druid level rounded down, then revert to your normal form unless you expend another use of this feature. You can revert to your normal form either uh, earlier by using a bonus action on your turn. You automatically revert to your, if you fall unconscious, drop to zero hit points, or die. While you're transformed, the following rules apply. Your game statistics are replaced by the statistics of the beast, but you retain your alignment, personality, intelligence, wisdom, and charisma scores. You also retain all of your skill and saving throw proficiencies in addition to gaining those of the creature. If the creature has the same proficiency as you and the bonus in its stat block is higher than yours, use the creature's bonus instead of yours. If the creature has any legendary or lair actions, you can't use them. When you transform, you assume the beast's hit points and hit dice. When you revert to your normal form, you return to the norm number of hit points you had before you transformed. However, if you uh, revert as a result of dropping to zero hit points, any excess damage carries over to your normal form. For example, if you take 10 damage in animal form and have only one hit point left, you revert and take 9 damage. 
As long as the excess damage doesn't reduce your normal form to zero hit points, you aren't knocked unconscious. You can't cast spells, and your ability to speak or take any action that requires hands is limited to the capabilities of the beast form. Transforming doesn't break your concentration on a spell you've already cast, however, or prevent you from taking actions that are part of a spell such as Call Lightning that you've already cast. You retain the benefit of any features from your class, race, or other source, and can use them if the new form is physically capable of doing so. However, you can't use any of your special senses, such as dark vision, unless your new form also has that sense. You choose whether your alignment falls to the uh, I'm sorry, equipment falls to the ground in your space, merges into your new form, or is worn by it. Worn equipment functions as normal, but the DM decides whether it's practical for the new form to wear a piece of equipment based on the creature's shape and size. Your equipment doesn't change shape or change uh, size or shape to match the new form, and any equipment that the new form can't wear must either fall to the ground or merge with it. Equipment that merges with the form has no effect until you leave the form. That's crazy. Druid Circle. At second level, you choose to identify with a circle of druids. The I'm just smelling patchouli oil and just a lot of just like a sausage party. That's what I'm thinking of when I think of a druid circle. And you know there's going to be drums. There's going to be so many drums. Someone's going to pull out a handmade flute at some point and not know how to play it, but that's not going to stop them from trying. I guarantee that is every druid circle. All right. A circle of land or a circle of moon, both detailed at the end of the class description. Your choice grants you features at, and a pipe. There's definitely handmade pipes in a druid circle. <laughs> uh, where was I? Your choice grants you features at second level and again at 6th, 10th, and 14th level. Ability score improvements. When you reach 4th level and again at 8th, 12th, 16th, and 19th level, you can increase one ability score of your choice by 2. Or you can increase two ability scores of your choice by 1. As normal, you can't increase an ability score above 20 using this feature. Timeless Body. Starting at 18th level, the primal magic that you wield causes you to age more slowly. For every 10 years that pass, your body ages one year. Oh, I wish I had that. Oh my gosh. I've got so many aches and pains and joint problems and sight issues that I never had just a decade ago. Aging sucks. Beast Spells. Beginning at 18th level, you can cast many of your druid spells in any shape, you assume, using wild shape. You can perform the somatic and verbal components of a druid spell while in beast shape, but you aren't able to provide material components. Oh, there's definitely a hookah present. <laughs> there's definitely a hookah. Archdruid. There's probably like an apple uh, or any other vegetable or fruit uh, pipe as well. You know, there's, and there's gravity bongs in someone's uh, VW for sure. Yes, these druids have VWs. Every druid has a VW. <laughs> Archdruid. At 20th level, you can use your wild shape an unlimited number of times. Additionally, you can ignore the verbal and somatic... Can I just read that? You gain this benefit of shape. Blah, 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 blah. Anyway, druidic circles or druid circles. Though their organization is invisible to most outsiders, druids are part of a society that spans the land, ignoring political borders. All druids are normally uh, nominally members of this druidic circle. Oh my gosh, society. Though some individuals are so isolated that they've never seen any high-ranking members of the society or participated in druidic gatherings. Druids recognize each other as brothers and sisters. Like creatures of the wilderness, however, druids sometimes compete with or even prey on each other. I'd never thought about that. 
That's wild. At a local scale, druids are organized into circles that share certain perspectives on nature, balance, and the way of the druid. I, I got to think about this for a minute. Druids sometimes compete with each other or even prey on each other. God, I've got to use that in role-playing. That's great. Derek's character is going to be in such trouble. There's going to be like a rival druid that's going to come in town. You just wait. At a local scale, druids are organized into circles that share certain perspectives on nature, balance, and the way of the druid. Circle of the Land. The Circle of the Land is made up of mystics and sages who safeguard ancient knowledge and rites through a vast oral tradition. These druids meet with sacred circles of trees or standing stones to whisper primal secrets in druidic. The Circle's wisest members preside as the chief priests of communities that hold to the old faith and serve as advisors to the rulers of those folk. As a member of this circle, your magic is influenced by the land where you were initiated into the circle's mysterious rites. Bonus cantrip. When you choose this circle at second level, you learn one additional druid cantrip of your choice. This cantrip doesn't count against the number of druid cantrips you know. Natural recovery. Starting at second level, you can regain some of your magical energy by sitting in meditation and communing with nature. During a short rest, you choose expended spell slots to recover. The spell slots have a combined level that is equal to or less than half your druid level rounded down, and none of the slots can be sixth level or higher. You can't use this feature again until you finish a long rest. For example, when you're a fourth level druid, you can recover up to two levels worth of spell slots. You can recover either a second level slot or two first level slots. Circle Spells. Your mystical connection to the land infuses you with the ability to cast certain spells. At 3rd, 5th, 7th, and ninth level, you gain access to circle spells connected to the land where you became a druid. Choose that land, arctic, coast, desert, forest, grassland, mountain, swamp, or underdark, and consult the associated list of spells. Once you gain access to a circle spell, you always have it prepared, and it doesn't count against the number of spells you can prepare each day. If you gain access to a spell that doesn't appear on the druid spell list, the spell is nonetheless a druid spell for you. That's cool. Arctic, and you can see the spells there. Coastal, and you see those spells. And desert. And, of course, forest. Oh, there's more. Grassland, and mountain, and swamp, and underdark. Land's Stride. Starting at 6th level, moving through non-magical difficult terrain costs you no extra movement. You can also pass through non-magical plants without being slowed by them. And, wait, you can pass through. I'm assuming it's just meaning not literally. <laughs> you know, like through a bramble bush or something. But not actually like phasing through the actual plant. Um, without being slowed by them and without taking damage from them if they have thorns, spines, or a similar hazard. In addition, you have advantage on saving throws against plants that are magically created or manipulated to impede movements, such as those created by the Entangle spell. Nature's Ward. When you reach 10th level, you can't be charmed or frightened by elements or fey, and you are immune to poison and disease. Nature's Sanctuary. When you reach 14th level, creatures of the nat natural world sense your connection to nature and become hesitant to attack you. When a beast or plant creature attacks you, the creature must make a wisdom saving throw against your druid spell save DC. On a failed save, the creature must choose a different target or the attack automatically misses. On a successful save, the creature is immune to this effect for 24 hours. The creature is aware of this effect before it makes its attack against you. Oh, wow. That's pretty cool. Druids and the gods. 
Some Druids venerate the forces of nature themselves, but most Druids are devoted to one of the many nature deities worshipped in the multiverse. A list of gods in Appendix B include many such deities. The worship of these deities is often considered a more ancient tradition than the faith of clerics and urbanized peoples. In fact, in the world of Greyhawk, the Druidic faith is called the Old Faith, and it claims many adherents among farmers, foresters, fishers, and others who live closely with nature. This tradition includes the worship of nature as a primal force beyond personification, but also encompasses the worship of Baori and Oerth Mother, as well as devotees of Abad High, Elona, and Ule. I don't know how to pronounce this stuff. In the worlds of Greyhawk and the Forgotten Realms, Druidic circles are not usually connected to the faith of a single nature deity. Any given circle of the Forgotten Realms, for example, might include deities who revere Sylvanus, Meliki, Eldath, Chante, or even the harsh gods of fury, Talos, Malar, Auril, and Umberly. These nature gods are often called the First Circle, the first among the Druids, and most Druids count them all, even the violent ones, as worthy of veneration. That reminds me of uh, sailors in uh, Dragonlance, where they will uh, give uh, sacrifice to Zeboim just to placate her, even though she's evil, simply because she is wildly temperamental and flighty and will quickly turn on you for no reason that you could understand. Drowning you or destroying your ship or sending you to Talitas, you know, like random places. The Druids of Eberron hold animistic beliefs completely unconnected to the Sovereign Host, the Dark Six, or any of the other religions of the world. The, uh, they believe that every living thing and every natural phenomenon, sun, moon, wind, fire, and the world itself, has a spirit. Their spells, then, are a means to communicate with and command these spirits. Different Druidic sects, though, hold different philosophies about the proper relationship of these spirits to each other and to the forces of civilization. The Ashbound, for example, believe that arcane magic is an abomination against nature. The children of winter venerate the forces of death, and the gatekeepers preserve ancient traditions meant to protect the world from the incursion of aberrations. And that is Druids. I'm going to take a sip of my Malbec. Oh, that's cool, Savage. I didn't know that. All right. Did anyone else answer the question about what class and uh, race you would be if you played a 5th edition game? Lord Flash X Esquire. <laughs> yeah, Cactus Great Club. <laughs> that's... You can eat it afterward. It's okay. Or just drink from it afterward. All right. <clears throat> Fighter. A human in clanging plate armor holds her shield before her as she runs toward the masked goblins. An elf behind her, clad in stud leather armor, peppers the goblins with arrows loosed from his exquisite bow. The half-orc nearby shouts orders, helping the two combatants coordinate their assault to the best advantage. A dwarf in chainmail imposes his shield between the ogre's club and his companion, knocking the deadly bow aside. His companion, a half-elf in scale armor, swings two scimitars in a blinding whirl as she circles the ogre, looking for a blind spot in its defenses. A gladiator fights for sport in an arena, a master with his trident and net, skilled at toppling foes and moving them around the crowd for the crowd's delight and his own tactical advantage. 
His opponent's sword flares with blue light an instant before she sends lightning flashing forth to smite him. All of these heroes are fighters, perhaps the most diverse class of characters in the worlds of Dragon Dungeons and Dragons, questing knights, conquering overlords, uh, royal champions, elite foot soldiers, hardened mercenaries, and bandit kings as fighters. They all share an unparalleled mastery with weapons and armor and th uh, thorough knowledge of the skills of combat, and they are well acquainted with death, both meeting it out and staring it defiantly in the face. Well-rounded specialists. Fighters learn the basics of all combat styles. Every fighter can swing an axe, fence with a rapier, wield a longsword or a greatsword, use a bow, and even trap foes in a net with some degree of skill. Likewise, a fighter is adept with shields and every form of armor. Beyond the basic degree of familiarity, each fighter specializes in a certain style of combat. Some concentrate on archery, some on fighting with two weapons at once, and some on augmenting their martial skills with magic. This combination of broad general ability and extensive specialization makes fighters superior combatants on battlefields and in dungeons alike. Trained for danger. Not every member of the City Watch, the village militia, or the Queen's Army is a fighter. Many of these troops are relatively untrained soldiers with only the most basic combat knowledge. Veteran soldiers, military officers, trained bodyguards, dedicated knights, and similar figures are fighters. Some fighters feel drawn to use their training as adventurers. The dungeon-delving, monster-slaying, and other dangerous work common among adventurers is second nature for a fighter, not all that different from the life he or she left behind. There are greater risks, perhaps, but also much greater rewards. Few fighters in the city watch... Uh, I'm sorry, few, few fighters in the City Watch have the opportunity to discover a magic flame-tongue sword, for example. Creating a fighter. As you build your fighter, think about two related elements of your character's background. When did you get combat training, or where did you get your combat training, and what set you apart from the mundane warriors around you? Were you particularly ruthless? Did you get extra help from a mentor, perhaps because of an exceptional dedication? What drove you to this training in the first place? A threat to your homeland, a thirst for revenge, or a need to prove yourself might all have been factors. You might have enjoyed formal training in a noble army or a local militia. Perhaps you trained in a war academy, learning strategy, tactics, and military history. Or you might be self-taught, unpolished, but well-tested. Did you take up the sword as a way to escape the limits of life on a farm, or are you following a proud family tradition? Where did you acquire your weapons and armor? They might have been military issue or family heirlooms, or perhaps you scrimped and saved for years to buy them. Your armaments are now among your most important possessions, the only things that stand between you and death's embrace. Quick build. You can make a fire quickly by following these suggestions. First, make strength or dexterity your highest ability score, depending on whether you want to focus on melee weapons or on archery or finesse weapons. Your next highest score should be Constitution or Intelligence, if you plan to adopt the Eldridge Knight Martial Archetype. Second, choose the Soldier Background. And you can see all the levels that give you the different proficiency bonuses and features. Class Features. As a fighter, you gain the following class features. Hit Dice, Hit Dice 1d10 per fighter level. Hit Points at first level, 10 plus your Constitution Modifier. Hit Points at higher levels, 1d10 or 6 plus your Constitution Modifier per fighter level after first. Proficiencies, all armor, shields, 
Weapons, simple weapons, martial weapons, tools, none. Saving throws, strength, constitution, skills. Choose two skills from acrobatics, animal handling, athletics, history, insight, intimidation, perception, and survival. Equipment. You start with the following equipment, in addition to the equipment granted by your background. Chainmail or leather armor, longbow, and 20 arrows. A martial weapon and a shield or two martial weapons. A light crossbow and 20 bolts or two hand axes. A dungeoneer's pack or an explorer's pack. Fighting style. You adopt a particular style of fighter as, you, as your specialty. Choose one of the following options. You can't take a fighting style option more than once, even if you later get to choose again. Archery, you gain plus two bonus to attack rolls when you make, uh, that you make with ranged weapons. Defense, while you're wearing armor, you gain plus one bonus to armor class. Dueling, when you're wielding a melee weapon in one hand and no other weapons, you gain a plus two bonus to damage rolls with your weapon. Great weapon fighting. When you roll a 1 or 2 on a damage die for an attack you make with a melee weapon that you are wielding with two hands, you can re-roll the die and must use the new roll, even if the new roll is a 1 or a 2. The weapon must have the two-handed or versatile property for you to gain this benefit. Protection. When a creature you can see attacks a target other than you that is within 5 feet of you, you can use your reaction to impose disadvantage on the attack roll. You must be wielding a shield. Two-weapon fighting. When you engage in two-weapon fighting, you can add your ability modifier to the damage of the second attack. Second Wind. You have a limited well of stamina that you can draw on to protect yourself from harm. On your turn, you can use a bonus action to regain hit points equal to 1 to 10, plus your fighter level. Once you use this feature, you must finish a short or long rest before you can use it again. Action Surge. Starting at second level, you can push yourself beyond your normal limits for a moment. On your turn, you can take one additional action on top of your regular action and a possible bonus action. Once you use this feature, you must finish a short or long rest before you can use it again. Starting at 17th level, you can use it twice before a rest, but only once on the same turn. Martial Archetype At 3rd level, you choose an archetype that you strive to emulate in your combat styles and techniques. Choose Champion, Battlemaster, or Eldridge Knight, all detailed at the end of the class description. The archetype you choose grants you features at 3rd level, and again at 7th, 10th, 15th, and 18th level. Ability Score Improvement When you reach 4th level, and again at 6th, 18th, 12th, 14th, 16th, and 19th level, you can increase one ability score of your choice by 2, or you can increase two ability scores of your choice by 1. As normal, you can't increase an ability score above 20 using this feature. Extra Attack Beginning at 5th level, you can attack twice instead of once. Whatever you take... Uh, whenever you take the attack action on your turn. The number of attacks increases to 3 when you reach 11th level in this class and to 4 when you reach 20th level in this class. Indomitable. Beginning at 9th level, you can re-roll a saving throw that you fail. If you do so, you must use the new roll, and you can't use this feature again until you finish a long rest. You can use this feature twice between long rests starting at 13th level and three times between long rests starting at 17th level. Martial Archetypes Different fighters choose different approaches to perfecting their fighting prowess. The martial archetype you choose to emulate reflects your approach. Champion The archetypal champion focuses on the development of raw physical power honed to perfection. Deadly perfection. Those who model themselves on this archetype combine rigorous training with physical excellence to deal devastating blows. Improved Critical Beginning when you choose this archetype at third level, your weapon attacks score a critical hit on a roll of 19 or 20. That's dope. Remarkable Athlete. Starting at seventh level, you can add half your proficiency bonus rounded up 
to any strength, dexterity, or constitution check you make that doesn't already use your proficiency bonus. In addition, when you make a running long jump, the distance you can cover increases by a number of feet equal to your strength modifier. Additional fighting style. At 10th level, you can choose a second option from the fighting style class feature. Superior critical. Starting at 15th level, your weapon attacks score a critical hit on a roll of 18 to 20. Dang! Survivor. At 18th level, you attain the pinnacle of resilience in battle. At the start of each of your turns, you regain hit points equal to 5 plus... Holy shnikey. That's crazy. You're like a troll. You just regenerate. Wow. 5 plus your constitution modifier if you have no more than half of your hit points left. You don't gain this benefit if you have zero hit points. Wow, that's pretty cool. I dig that, man. All gladiators bring thoughts of Spartacus and Maximus the Spaniard. Yeah, Gladiator was great in that film. Let's see. Two-weapon fighting, twins-level fighter can, with an action surge, make nine attacks in one turn. <laughs> That's bananas. All right. That's crazy. All right, give me one second here. Like an idiot. I'm wearing two shirts, and it is hot as hell in here. Yeah, I think if I was playing a 5th edition character, I would definitely do the Knight of Salamnia, just because I think it would be fun. But alternatively, I've always loved the idea of, uh, um, like Old Men Rolling Dice mentioned, the, the Fighter Mage. I think that would be kind of fun. And just sort of break the mold of uh, Wizard of High Sorcery, you know? That's what I loved about that story um, when Palin went to take his test of High Sorcery, and they had to, like, trick Karaman and Palin to get him to go in and do it and they met the sailor uh, I can't remember his name right now but he was a sailor um, uh, I think he was a white robe wizard but he was like super bulky and strong and just like a badass I love wizards that break the wizard mold there's nothing in my personal opinion more boring than a traditional wizard character I just I can't I can't handle it <laughs> And I get that people are super stoked on characters like El Minister or Raceland, for example. But don't emulate them. Don't don't make a character based on another character. Like, make your own. Make your own mark in the world. Challenge the gods on your own two feet, people. All right. Monk. Her fists a blur as they deflect an incoming hail of arrows. A half-elf springs over a barricade and throws herself into the massed ranks of hobgoblins on the other side. She whirls among them, knocking their blows aside and sending them reeling, until at last she stands alone. Taking a deep breath, the human covered in tattoos settles into a battle stance. As the first charging orcs reach him, he exhales and a blast of fire roars from his mouth engulfing his foes. Moving with the silence of the night, a black-clad halfling steps into the shadow beneath an arch and emerges from another inky shadow on a balcony a stone's throw away. She slides her blade free of its cloth-wrapped scabbard and peers through the open window at the tyrant prince, so vulnerable in the grip of sleep. Whatever their discipline, monks are united in their ability to magically harness the energy that flows in their bodies. Whether channeling as a striking display of combat prowess or a subtler focus of defense ability and speed, this energy infuses all that a monk does. The magic of key. 
Monks make careful study of a magical energy that most monastic traditions call ki. This energy is an element of the magic that suffuses the multiverse, specifically the element that flows through living bodies. Monks harness this power within themselves to create magical effects and exceed their body's physical capabilities, and some of their special attacks can hinder the flow of ki in their opponents. Using this energy, monks channel uncanny speed and strength in their unarmed strikes. As they gain experience, their martial training and their mastery of ki gives them more power over their bodies and the bodies of their foes. Training and asceticism. Oh my gosh. Asceticism. Asceticism. Sweet hell, I can't say that word. Small walled cloisters dot the landscape of the worlds of Dungeons and Dragons, tiny refuges from the flow of ordinary life, where time seems to stand still. The monks who live there seek personal perfection through the contemplation and rigorous training. I can't help thinking of Ace Ventura <laughs> when I think of like monks at all. I, I just, I see him in my head. I can't help it. I see that scene, that opening scene, mimicking that Stallone movie with the, it was a raccoon, I think, falling from that long rope that he was trying to climb across. It was just hilarious. That show is great. Bumblebee Tuna. Many entered the monastery as children sent to live there with their, when their parents died, when food couldn't be found to support them, or in return for some kindness that the monks had performed for their families. <laughs> All right, I can't get it out of my head now. Pretty hot in these rhinos. That scene of him coming out of the rhino's butthole is hilarious. Ugh, it's great. Some monks live entirely apart from the surrounding population, secluded from anything that might impede their spiritual progress. Others are sworn to isolation, emerging only to serve as spies or assassins at the command of their leader, a noble patron, or some other mortal or divine power. The majority of monks don't shun their neighbors, making frequent visits to nearby towns or villages and exchanging their service for food and other goods. As versatile warriors, monks often end up protecting their neighbors from monsters or tyrants. For a monk, becoming an adventurer means leaving a structured communal lifestyle to become a wanderer. This can be a harsh transition, and monks don't undertake it lightly. Those who leave their cloisters take their work seriously, approaching their adventures as personal tests of their physical and spiritual growth. As a rule, monks care little for material wealth and are driven by a desire to accomplish a greater mission than merely slaying monsters and plundering their treasure. I loved Rise the Monk in um, the Dark Disciple trilogy. I thought that was so great. Oh, man. Spike. Yes, Spike. Creating a Monk. As you make your monk character, think about your connection to the monastery where you learned your skills and spent your formative years. Were you an orphan or a child left to the monastery's threshold? Did your parents promise you to the, um, to the monastery in gratitude for service performed by the monks? Did you enter this secluded... That is a weird... So the monks, like, I don't know, saved your town, gave you food when you're starving, and you're like... You know, we got an extra kid here we don't really need. You want to take him? It's kind of weird, right? I went to the liquor store today. You know, this is, I'm going to go on a tangent. I don't want to do this. Did you enter this secluded life to hide from a crime you committed? Or did you choose the monastic life for yourself? Consider why you left. Yeah. Thanks for helping me build a barn. Have a kid. Take a kid on your way out. I got plenty. 
The wife doesn't mind pushing them out. She's really great at it. <laughs> Consider why you left. Did the head of your monastery choose you for a particular... I'm never going to get through this class. Oh my gosh. Ugh. Did the head of your monastery choose you for a particularly important mission beyond the cloister? Perhaps you were cast out because of some violation of the community's rules. Did you dread leaving or were you happy to go? Is there something you hope to accomplish outside the monastery? Are you eager to return to your home? As a result of the structured life of a monastic community and the discipline required to harness key, monks are always lawful in alignment. Quick build. You can make a monk quickly by following these suggestions. First, make dexterity your highest ability score, followed by wisdom. Second, choose the hermit background. You're not much of a hermit if you're living with a bunch of other dudes in a monastery, right? Is that the same? I mean, it seems different to me. Here's all the different features you get, all the cool martial art damages you get. And I had a buddy who once, uh, we were playing Advanced Dungeons and Dragons, and um, his, uh, we, his, his older brother picked up Oriental Adventures. And from that moment on, he always wanted to play a ninja or a monk. And it was the most frustrating thing because every character was the same. And he was just constantly trying to just do this one same thing. Diversify, people. Diversify. All right. Class features. As a monk, you gain the following class features. Hit points. Hit dice 1d8 per monk level. Hit points at first level, 8 plus your constitution modifier. Hit points at higher levels, 1d8 or 5 plus your constitution modifier per monk level after first. Proficiencies, armor, none, weapons, simple weapons, short swords, tools. Choose one type of arson tool or, or one musical instrument. Saving throws, strength, dexterity, skills. Choose two from acrobatics, athletics, history, insight, religion, and stealth. Equipment. You start with the following equipment in addition to the equipment granted by your background. A short sword or a simple weapon, a dungeoneer's pack or explorer's pack, 10 darts. Unarmored defense. Beginning at first level, when you're wearing no armor and wielding a and not wielding a shield, your armor class equals 10 plus your dexterity modifier plus your wisdom modifier. That is crazy strong. That's awesome. Martial arts. At first level, your practice of martial arts give you mastery of combat styles that use unarmored strikes and monk weapons, which are short swords and any simple melee weapon that doesn't have the two-handed or heavy property. <laughs> I'm just imagining a monk just doing like, just straight up jujitsu instead of like standing and fighting and striking. They just take everyone down all the time. Like every fight that has ever happened in real life ever. Growing up in the 80s, I'm going on a bit of a tangent here. Growing up in the 80s, every TV show or film we watched told us that stand-up fighting was the only way that people street-fighted. Whether it was video games or films or TV shows. Like, that was just what everyone ever told you. And then personal experience. I have never seen a fight that did not end up in wrestling. Ever. Like, it just doesn't happen. And yet we're told that it does. It, we, we're living a lie here, people. <laughs> Stop the nonsense. <laughs> yeah, Streets of Rage. You gain the following benefits when you are unarmed or wielding only monk weapons and you aren't wearing armor or wearing wielding a shield. You can use dexterity instead of strength for the attack and damage rolls of your unarmored strikes and monk weapons. You can roll a d4 and place the normal damage of your unarmed strike or monk weapon. This die changes as you gain monk levels, as shown in the martial arts column on the monk table. When you use the attack action with an unarmed strike or a monk weapon on your turn, you can make one unarmored strike as a bonus action. What?! 
For example, if you take the attack action and attack with a quarterstaff, you can also make an unarmored strike as a bonus action, assuming you haven't already taken a bonus action this turn. That's great! Every single... Oh, this is the best taunting... We need... We need Kender Monks. Because there's nothing better than talking smack about someone, hitting them with your hoopack, and then literally smacking them afterward. Ugh! Certain monasteries use specialized forms of the monk weapons. For example, you might use a club that is two lengths of wood connected by a short chain called a nunchaku or a sickle with a shorter... <laughs> That's another thing in the 80s growing up. Everyone's brother had nunchucks and no one knew how to use them. I cannot tell you how many times the, the, the tender bits were hit by nunchucks trying to pull some ninja stuff out or a sickle with a shorter straighter blade called a comma whatever name you use for a monk weapon you can use the game statistics provided for the weapon in chapter 5 equipment key starting a second level your training allows you to harness the mystical energy of key you access uh, your access to this energy is represented by a number of key points your monk level determines the number of points you have as shown in the key points column of the monk table you can spend these points to fuel various key features. You start knowing three such features, flurry of blows, patient defense, and step of the wind. You learn more key features. I'm not going to make a joke about that. I promise I will not do it. I have to move past it. Whew. You learn more key features as you gain levels in this class. When you spend a key point, it is unavailable until you finish a short or long rest, at the end of which you draw all of your expended key back into yourself. You must spend at least 30 minutes of the rest meditating to regain your key points. Some of your key features require your target to make a saving throw to resist the feature's effects. The saving throw DC is calculated as follows. <laughs> key saves DC. I'm sorry, key save DC equals 8 plus your proficiency bonus plus your wisdom modifier. Flurry of blows. Immediately after you take the action, attack action on your turn, you can spend one key point to make two unarmed strikes as a bonus action. Patient defense. You can spend one key point to take a dodge action as a bonus action on your turn. That's cool. Step of the wind. You can spend one key point to take the disengage or dash action as a bonus action on your turn. And your jump distance is doubled for the turn. Oh, I take it back. I want to make a. I want to make a druid. This sounds. I mean, a monk. This sounds awesome. Unarmored strike. Starting at second level, your speed increases by ten feet when you are not wearing armor or wielding a shield. This bonus increases when you reach certain monk levels, as shown in the monk table. At ninth level, you gain the ability to move along vertical surfaces, and that's awesome. And across liquids, on your turn without falling during the move. That's incredible. I want to play a monk. Monastic tradition. When you reach third level, you commit yourself to a monastic tradition, the way of the open hand, the way of shadow, or the way of the four elements, all detailed at the end of the class description. Your tradition grants you features at third level and again at sixth, eleventh, and seventeenth level. Deflect missiles. Oh, that's tough. Starting at third level, you can use your reaction of reaction to deflect or catch ah, the missile when you are hit by a ranged weapon attack. So you're already hit, but you can grab it instead. Oh, that's so badass. 
When you do so, the damage you take from the attack is reduced by 1d10, plus your dexterity modifier, plus your monk level. If you reduce the damage to zero, you can catch the missile if it's small enough for you to hold in one hand, and you have at least one free hand. If you catch a missile in this way, you can spend one key point to make a ranged attack with the weapon or piece of ammunition you just caught as part of the same reaction. That is the coolest thing I've ever read in my entire life. I want to do this right now. You make this attack with proficiency, regardless of your weapon proficiencies, and the missile counts as a monk weapon for the attack, which is a normal range of 20 feet and a long range of 60 feet. Oh, how awesome would that be? When you reach 4th level, and again at 8th, 12th, 16th, and 19th level, you can increase one ability score of your choice by 2, or you can increase two ability scores of your choice by 1. As normal, you can't increase the ability score above 20 using this feature. Slow fall. Beginning at 4th level, you can use your reaction when you fall to reduce any falling damage you take by an amount equal to 5 times your monk level. Wow. Extra attack. Beginning at 5th level, you can attack twice instead of once whenever you take the attack action on your turn. Stunning Strike. Starting at 5th level, you can interfere with the flow of key in an opponent's body. When you hit another creature with a melee weapon attack, you can spend one key point to attempt a stunning strike. The target must succeed on a constitution saving throw or be stunned until the end of your next turn. Key Empowered Strikes. Starting at 6th level, your unarmed strikes count as magical for the purpose of overcoming resistance and immunity to non-magical attacks and damage. That's pretty cool, man. Evasion. At 7th level, your instinctive agility lets you dodge out of the way of certain area effects, such as a blue dragon's lightning breath or a fireball spell. When you are subjected to an effect that allows you to make a dexterity saving throw to take only half damage, you instead take no damage if you succeed in the saving throw, and only half if you do fail. Stillness of Mind Starting at 7th level, you can use your action to end one effect on yourself that is causing you to be charmed or frightened. Purity of Body At 10th level, your mastery of the key flowing through you makes you immune to disease and poison. Tongue of the Sun and Moon this is a PG-13 channel. I'm not sure I should read more. Starting at 13th level, you learn to touch the key of other minds so that you understand all spoken languages. Moreover, any creature that you can understand a language can understand what you say. Well, that's cool. Diamond Soul. Beginning at 14th level, your mastery of key grants you proficiency on all saving throws. <laughs> what? Additionally, is this overpowered compared to the other classes? This sounds really, really badass. Why would... Why would anyone be anything but a monk? Hmm. Additionally, whenever you make a saving throw and fail, you can spend one key point to re-roll it and take a second result. Timeless body. At 15th level, your key sustains you so you suffer none of the frailty of old age, and you can't be aged magically. You can still die of old age, however. In addition, you'll just be a great-looking corpse, is what it'll be. In addition, you no longer need food or water. <laughs> what? Just subtly thrown in. Oh yeah, we forgot to tell you. You no longer peer poop. It's pretty awesome. Empty body. Beginning at 18th level, you can use your action to spend four key points to become invisible. What? During that time, you also have resistance to all damage, but force damage. Additionally, you can spend eight key points to cast the astral projection spell without needing material components. When you do so, you can't take any other creatures with you. Perfect self. At 20th level, you roll for initiative and have no key points remaining. Regain four key points. Wow. 
This is insane. Oh my gosh, it takes a while to get going, but high levels of monks are brutal. Yeah, they sound brutal. They sound amazing. Monastic traditions. Three traditions of monastic pursuit are common in the monastics, I'm sorry, monasteries scattered across the multiverse. Most monasteries practice one tradition exclusively, but a few honor the three traditions and instruct each monk according to his or her aptitude and interest. All three traditions rely on the same basic techniques, diverging as the student grows more adept. Thus, a monk needs uh, a monk need choose a tradition only upon reaching third level. Way of the open hand, aka the pimp. Uh, I'm just kidding. I do not support abuse of anyone. Monks of the Way of the Open Hand are the ultimate masters of martial arts combat, whether armed or unarmed. They learn techniques to push and trip their opponents, manipulate key to heal damage to their bodies, and practice advanced meditation that can protect them from harm. Open Hand Technique When you choose this tradition at third level, you can manipulate your enemy's key with your, uh, when you harness your own. Whatever you hit... I'm sorry. Whenever you hit a creature with one of the attacks granted by your flurry of blows, you can impose one of the following effects on the target. It must make a dexterity saving throw or be knocked prone. It must make... That's a great hit. It must make a strength saving throw. If it fails, you can push it up to 15 feet away from you. That's awesome. You can't... Uh, I'm sorry. It can't take reactions until the end of your next turn. Wholeness of body. At sixth level, you gain the ability to heal yourself. As an action, you can regain hit points equal to three times your monk level. You must finish a long rest before you can use this feature again. Tranquility. Beginning at 11th level, you can enter a special meditation that surrounds you with an aura of peace. At the end of a long rest, you gain the effect of a sanctuary spell that lasts until the start of your next long rest. The spell can end early as normal. The saving throw DC for the spell equals 8 plus your wisdom modifier plus your proficiency bonus. Quivering Palm. I'm imagining jazz hands. At 17th level, you gain the ability to set up lethal vibrations in someone's body. When you hit a creature with an unarmed strike, you can spend three key points to start the imperceptible vibrations, which last for a number of days equal up to your monk level. The vibrations are harmless unless you use your action to end them. To do so, you and the target must be on the same plane of existence. When you use this action, the creature must make a constitution saving throw. If it fails, it's reduced to zero hit points. Whoa! If it succeeds, it takes 10d10 necrotic damage. Wah! That's crazy. You can have only one creature under the effect of this feature at a time. You can choose to end the vibrations harmlessly without using an action. That's the craziest thing I've ever heard. That's awesome. Monastic orders. That's like Kill Bill, that that uh, five-finger death punch or whatever it's called. Monastic orders. The worlds of Dungeons & Dragons contain a multitude of monasteries and monastic traditions. In lands with an Asian cultural flavor, such as Shaolung, far to the east of the Forgotten Realms, these monasteries are associated with philosophical traditions and martial arts practice. The Iron Hand School and Five Stars School, the Northern Fist School, and the Southern Stars School, or Shaolung, teach different approaches to the physical, mental, and spiritual disciplines of the monk. Some of these monasteries have spread to the western lands of Faroon, particularly in places with large Shao immigrant communities such as Thesk and Westgate. Other monastic traditions are associated with deities who teach the value of physical excellence and mental discipline. In the Forgotten Realms, the Order of the Dark Moon is made up of monks dedicated to Shar, goddess of loss, who maintain secret communities in remote hills, back alleys, and subterranean hideaways. 
monasteries of, oh boy, uh, Ilmater, god of endurance, are named after flowers, and their orders carry the names of great heroes of the faith. The disciples of St. Solars, the twice-martyred, reside in the monastery of the Yellow Rose near Damara. The monasteries of Ebron combine the study of martial arts with a life of scholarship. Most are devoted to the deities of the sovereign host. In the world of Dragonlance, what, what? Most monks are devoted to Majir, or Majare, god of meditation and thought. In Greyhawk, many monasteries are dedicated to Zanye, the goddess of twilight and the superior, uh, superiority of mind over matter, or the Zaukin, god of mental and physical mastery. The evil monks of the Scarlet Brotherhood in the world of Greyhawk derive their fanatical zeal not from the devotion to a god, but from the dedication to the principles of their nature, I'm sorry, nation and their race, the belief that the Sewell strand of humanity are meant to rule the world. All right. That is a lot, man. <laughs> Let's see. The only downside to playing a monk is your personality has to be pretty tranquil, I would think. May not be as fun. Yeah. I don't know. Just take an edible and you'll be fine. Hey, Taryn. Thanks for joining live. Paladin. This is my class of choice that I've played every game I've ever been in as a kid. Striking stark contrast to my earlier statement of diversifying your characters, as I am a straight-up hypocrite. <laughs> Paladin. Clad in plate armor that gleams in the sunlight, despite the dust and grime of long travel, a human lays down her sword and shield and places her hands on a mortally wounded man. Divine radiance shines from her hands. The man's wounds knit closed, and his eyes open wide with amazement. A dwarf crouches behind an outcrop, his black cloak making him nearly invisible in the night, and watches an orc warband celebrating its recent victory. Silently, he stalks into their midst and whispers an oath, and two orcs are dead before they even realize he is there. That doesn't sound very paladin-like. Sneaking in and murdering them before they're even aware he's there? That doesn't sound like a paladin at all. Man, I take issue with that. Silver hair shining in a shaft of light that seems to illuminate only him, an elf laughs <laughs> with exultation. His spear flashes like his eyes as he jabs again and again at a twisted giant until at last his light overcomes its hideous darkness. Whatever their origin and their mission, paladins are united by their oaths to stand against the forces of evil. Whether sworn before a god's altar, a witness of a priest, or in a sacred glade before nature's spirits and fey beings, or in a moment of desperation and grief with the dead as the only witness, a paladin's oath is a powerful bond. It is a source of power that turns a devout warrior into a blessed champion. The cause of righteousness. A paladin swears to uphold justice and righteousness, to stand with the good things of the world against the encroaching darkness, and to hunt the forces of evil wherever they lurk. Different paladins focus on various aspects of the cause of righteousness, but all are bound by the oaths that grant them power to their sacred work. Although many paladins are devoted to gods of good, a paladin's power comes as much from a commitment to justice as itself as does from a god. Paladins train for years to learn the skills of combat, mastering a variety of weapons and armor. Even so, their martial skills are secondary to the magical power they wield. Power to heal the sick and injured, to smite the wicked and the undead, and to protect the innocent and those who join them in the fight for justice. 
Beyond the mundane life, almost by definition, the life of a paladin is an adventuring life. Unless a lasting injury has taken him or her away from adventuring for a time, every paladin lives on the front lines of the cosmic struggle against evil. Fighters are rare enough among the ranks of the militias and armies of the world, but even fewer people can claim the true calling of a paladin. When they do receive the call, these warriors turn from their former occupations and take up arms to fight evil. Sometimes their oaths lead them into the service of the crown as leaders of elite groups of knights, but even then their loyalty is first to the cause of righteousness, not to crown and country. Uh, Vinus Salamis. Adventuring paladins take their work seriously. A delve into an ancient ruin or dusty crypt can be a quest driven by a higher purpose than an acquisition of treasure. Evil lurks in dungeons and primeval forests, and even the smallest victory against it can tilt the cosmic balance away from oblivion. Creating a Paladin The most important aspect of a Paladin character is the nature of his or her holy quest. Although the class features related to your oath don't appear until you reach third level, plan ahead for that choice by reading the oath descriptions at the end of the class. Are you devoted to servant of good, laying to the gods of justice and honor? A holy knight in shining armor, venturing forth to smite evil? Are you a glorious champion of the light, cherishing everything beautiful that stands against the shadow? A knight whose oath descends from traditions older than many of the gods? Or are you an embittered loner, sworn to take vengeance on those who have done great evil, sent as an angel of death by the gods, or driven by your need for revenge? That's a cool take uh, on, on a paladin. That is not something that I would ever consider a paladin. Under that frame, wouldn't Punisher be a paladin? The comic Punisher? Like, wouldn't any revenge story be able to claim that they're... The Crow would be a paladin under that definition. Hmm. Hmm. What's the difference between a paladin and a knight? <laughs> uh, taking notes in Sunday school. <laughs> Yeah, those, those are good answers. Um, a droopy mustache? Appendix B lists many deities worshipped by paladins throughout the multiverse, such as Torm, Tyr, Heronius, Paladine, Kiri Jolith, Dol Ara, the Silver Flame, Bahamut, Athena, Ray Ho. Oh my gosh. Ray Horakiti? Ray Horakiti? Ray Horakiti? And Heimdall. How do you experience your call to serve as a paladin? Did you hear a whisper from an unseen god or angel while you were at prayer? That's called insanity. Did you <laughs> did another paladin sense the potential within you and decide to train you as a squire? Or did some terrible event, the destruction of your home perhaps, drive you to your quests? Perhaps you were a monk given to the monks because your family didn't like you very much and you are coming back to kill them under divine watch as retribution. Um, it could all happen. Or did some terrible event, the destruction of your home, perhaps drive you to your quest? Perhaps you stumbled onto a sacred grove or a hidden elven enclave and found yourself called to protect all such refu refugees of goodness and beauty? Or did you... <laughs> I'm imagining someone going into a grove and being like, I am hereby protecting this realm. And the elves are cool and you're like, uh, now we're good, get out. He's like, no, I henceforth shall protect all elves from all outside creatures they're like now nah, we're good man like get shoot get out of here and like cut to two seconds later he's just like peppered with arrows 
Or you might have known your earliest memories that your paladin's life was your calling, almost as if you had been sent into the world with that purpose stamped on your soul. As guardians against the forces of wickedness, paladins are rarely of any evil alignment. Most of them walk the paths of charity and justice. Consider how your alignment color the way you... This is, See, this bothers me because in this context, they're focusing heavily on alignment. And in the rest of the game, they don't even pay attention to it at all. Consistency here, people. So considering how your alignment colors the way you pursue your holy quest and the manner in which you conduct yourself before gods and mortals, your oath and alignment might be in harmony or your oath might resent standards of behavior that you have not yet attained. Quick build. You can make a paladin quickly by following these suggestions. First, strength should be your highest ability score, followed by charisma. Second, choose the noble background. And you can see all the different features and spells you gain. Class features. As a paladin, you gain the following class features. Hit points, hit dice, 1d10 per paladin level. Hit points at first level, 10 plus your constitution modifier. Hit points at higher levels, 1 to 10 or 6, plus your constitution modifier per paladin level at first. Do any of you take um, um, auto like this, the average hit point when you level, or do you like to roll every time? And then if you roll lower than the average, are you upset? <laughs> I'm curious. Proficiencies, armor, all armor, shields, weapons, simple weapons, martial weapons, tools, none. Saving throws, wisdom, charisma, skills, choose two from athletics, insight, intimidation, medicine, persuasion, and religion. Equipment. You start with the following equipment, in addition to the equipment granted by your background. A martial weapon and a shield, or two martial weapons. Fire javelin, I'm sorry, five javelins, <laughs> not fire javelin, uh, or any simple melee weapon. A priest's pack, or an explorer's pack. Chainmail, and a holy symbol. Divine sense. The presence of strong evil registers on your senses like a noxious odor, and powerful good rings like heavenly music in your ears. As an action, you can open your awareness to detect such forces. Until the end of your next turn, you know the location of any celestial fiend or undead within 60 feet of you that's not behind total cover. You know the type of... Yeah, but by that rationale, doesn't everyone else know that too? The paladin like steps forward. I sense... I sense a fire minion standing right in front of me. And everyone else is like, yeah, dude, we're like right here too. You need a divine sense for that? You know the type of celestial fiend or undead, if any being whose presence you sense, but not its identity. The vampire Count Strahd von Zarovich, for instance, within the same... Re <laughs> I, think, I think any sufficiently strong bad guy like Strahd would let you know who he is. So you wouldn't have to sense to find out who he is. He would just come out bare-chested, like, like, um, what is that Chippendale's Saturday Night Live commercial? Or not commercial, but skit with, um, oh my gosh, what is his name? All right, never mind. Sorry, I was going to tell a good joke. It's gone. Within the same radius, you can also detect the presence of any place or object that has been consecrated or desecrated, as with the hollow spell. You can use this feature a number of times equal to one plus your charisma modifier. When you finish a long rest, you gain all expended usage. Lay on hands. Your blessed touch can heal wounds. You have a pool of healing power that replenishes when you take a long rest. With that pool, you can restore a total number of hit points equal to your paladin level plus or times five. As an action, you can touch a creature and draw power from the pool to restore a number of hit points to that creature up to the maximum amount remaining in your pool. 
Alternatively, you can expend five hit points from your pool of healing to cure the target of one disease or neutralize one poison affecting it. You can cure multiple diseases and neutralize multiple poisons with a single use of Lay on Hands, expending hit points separately for each one. This feature has no effect on undead and constructs. Fighting Style At second level, you adopt a style of fighting as your specialty. Choose one of the following options. You can't take a fighting style option more than once, even if later you get to choose again. It was Patrick Swayze. Oh my gosh, thank you, Engine Joe. Ugh, just... I'm just, that's like the new Strahd now. He's just going to come out and start boogieing in front of the party. What are you going to do? I'm Strahd. You got nothing. What are you going to do? I'm Strahd. Uh, defense. When you're wearing armor, you gain plus one bonus to armor class. Dueling. When you're wielding a melee weapon in one hand and no other weapons, you gain plus two bonus to damage rolls with that weapon. Greater, uh, great weapon fighting. When you roll one or two on a damage die for an attack you make with a melee weapon that you are wielding with two hands, you can re-roll the die and must use the new roll. The weapon must have the two-handed or versatile property for you to gain this benefit. Now I'm just imagining, like, Strahd <laughs> would not make a good roadhouse guy like Patrick Swayze. You know, I can't imagine him, like, <laughs> doing that stuff. I can imagine him in Donnie Darko in Patrick Swayze's character, that creepy... I don't know, I'm not going to get into it. Anyway, if, if you haven't seen Donnie Darko, you should watch it. Patrick Swayze does a, uh, a difficult role, <laughs> I will say. Protection. When a creature you can see attacks a target other than you that is within five feet of you, you can use your reaction to impose disadvantage on the attack roll. You must be wielding a shield. Spellcasting. By second level, you've learned to draw on divine magic through meditation and prayer to cast spells as a cleric does. See chapter 10 for the general rules of spellcasting and chapter 11 for the paladin spell list. Preparing and casting spells. The paladin table shows you how many spell slots you have to cast your paladin spells. To cast one of your paladin spells at first level or higher, you must expend a spell slot of the spell's level or higher. You regain all extended spell slots when you finish a long rest. You prepare the list of paladin spells that are available for you to cast. Choose from the paladin spell list. When you do so, choose a number of paladin spells equal to your charisma modifier plus half your paladin level rounded down. Minimum of one spell. The spells must be of a level for which you have spell slots. I really have a problem with the way 5th edition manages spells. Like, it's just so willy-nilly. Like, you have to memorize spells, but then you don't really have to because you can substitute other spells for that spell slot. And it's just, like, a la carte, dealer's choice. It doesn't really matter. Kind of bugs me. For example... If you're a 5th level paladin, you have 4 first level and 2 second level spell slots with a charisma of 14, your list of prepared spells can include 4 spells of 1st or 2nd level in any combination. If you prepare the 1st level spell Cure Wounds, you can cast it using a 1st level or 2nd level slot. Casting the spell doesn't remove it from your list of prepared spells. You can change your list of prepared spells when you finish a long rest. Preparing a new list of paladin spells requires time spent in prayer and meditation, at least one minute per spell level for each spell on your list. Spellcasting Ability Charisma is your spellcasting ability for your paladin spells since the, their divine power derives from the strength of your convictions. You use your charisma whenever a spell refers to your spellcasting ability. In addition, you use your charisma modifier when settling uh, the saving throw DC for a paladin spell you cast and when making an attack roll with one. 
Spell save DC equals eight plus your proficiency bonus plus your charisma modifier. Spell attack modifier is your proficiency bonus plus your charisma modifier. Spellcasting focus. You can use a holy symbol, see chapter five equipment, as a spellcasting focus for your paladin spells. Divine smite. Starting a second level, when you hit a creature with a melee weapon attack, you can expend one spell slot to deal radiant damage to the target, in addition to the weapon's damage. The extra damage is 2d8 for a first level spell slot, plus 1d8 for each spell level higher than first, to a maximum of 5d8. The damage increases by 1d8 if the target is an undead or a fiend, to a maximum of 6d8. That's awesome. Divine Health. By third level, the divine magic flowing through you makes you immune to disease. Sacred Oath. When you read, I don't remember seeing any like disease lists in the fifth edition Dungeon Master's Guide. I think there are like a small list of them actually now that I'm thinking about it. I always loved the appendixes of the Advanced Dungeons and Dragons Dungeon Master's Guide. It has the best for herbs and roots and diseases and poisons and like it's just the greatest so no matter what edition you play always have the advanced dungeon dragons dungeon masters guide because those appendixes are a great resource for everyone they're just dope sacred oath when you reach third level you swear the oath that binds you as a paladin forever up to this time you've been in a preparatory stage committed to the path but not yet sworn to it now, you choose the Oath of Devotion, the Oath of the Ancients, or the Oath of Vengeance, all detailed at the end of the class description. Your choice grants you features at 3rd level and again at 7th, 15th, and 20th level. Those features include Oath Spells and Channel Divinity feature. Oath Spells. Each Oath has a list of associated spells. You gain access to these spells at levels specified in the Oath description. Once you gain access to an Oath Spell, you always have it prepared. Oath Spells don't count against the number of spells you can prepare each day. If you gain an oath spell that doesn't appear to the, uh, on the paladin spell list, the spell is nevertheless a paladin spell for you. Channel Divinity. Your oath allows you to channel divinity energy to fuel magical effects. Each channel divinity option provided by your oath explains how to use it. When you use your channel divinity, you choose which option to use. You must then finish a long or short rest to use your channel divinity again. Some Channel Divinity effects require saving throws. When you use such an effect from this class, the DC equals your Paladin spell level save. I'm sorry, spell save DC. Ability score improvements. When you reach 4th level, and again at 8th, 12th, 16th, and 19th level, you can increase one ability score of your choice by two, or you can increase two ability scores by your choice by one. As normal, you can't increase an ability score above 20 using this feature. Extra attack. Beginning at 5th level, you can attack twice instead of once whenever you take the attack action on your turn. Aura of Protection. Starting at 6th level, whenever you or a friendly creature within 10 feet of you must make a saving throw, the creature gains a bonus to the saving throw equal to your Charisma modifier with a minimum bonus of plus 1. You must be conscious to grant this uh, bonus. At 8th level, the range of this aura increases to 30 feet. So as the Paladin, you just do like the blue steel look and it <laughs> benefits everyone around you. Alright. Aura of Courage. Starting at 10th level, you and friendly creatures within 10 feet of you can't be frightened while you're conscious. At 18th level, the range of this aura increases to 30 feet. That is incredibly helpful in Dragonlance. Oh my gosh. Especially during the War of Lands. Improved Divine Smite. By 11th level, you are suffused with righteous might. That You are so suffused with righteous might that all your melee weapon strikes carry divine power with them. 
Whenever you hit a creature with a melee weapon, the creature takes an extra 1d8 radiant damage. <laughs> it reminds me of that, um, that old horror film. I kick ass for the Lord! Good stuff. Cleansing Touch. Beginning at 14th level, you can use your action to end one spell on yourself or on one willing creature that you touch. You can use this feature a number of times equal to your charisma modifier, a minimum of once. You regain extended uses when you finish a long rest. Sacred Oaths. Become a paladin involves taking vows that commit the paladin to the cause of righteousness, an active path of fighting wickedness. The final oath taken when he or she reaches third level is the culmination of the paladin's training. Some characters with this class don't consider themselves true paladins until they have reached third level and made this oath. For others, the actual swearing of the oath is a formality, an official stamp on what has always been true in the paladin's heart. Breaking your oath. A paladin tries to hold to the highest standards of conduct, but even the most virtuous paladin is fallible. Sometimes the right path proves too demanding. Sometimes the situation calls for the lesser of two evils. And sometimes the heat of emotion causes a paladin to transgress his or her oath. A paladin who has broken a vow typically seeks absolution from a cleric who shares his or her faith or from another paladin of the same order. The paladin must spend an all-night vigil in prayer as a sign of penitence or undertake a fast or similar act of self-denial. After a rite of confession and forgiveness, the paladin starts fresh. If a paladin willfully violates his or her oath and shows no sign of repentance, the consequences can be more serious. At the DM's discretion, an impenitent paladin might be forced to abandon the class and adopt another, or perhaps to take the Oathbreaker Paladin's option and that appears in Dungeon Master's Guide. I like that. A lot. Yeah, there's consequences in every one of my games. If you act against your chosen alignment and it's like a, a power granted by that alignment reference, clerics and paladins specifically, then you're going to get disadvantage until you atone for that in every act that is somehow backed by your class, whether it's uh, casting a spell, laying on hands, you know, trying to use any sort of paladin power or whatever. And until you do that, um, you're going to just suffer those consequences. If you do then go through the penitence, then of course everything goes back to normal. But if you continue over a period of time of just ignoring it and dealing with it, then I'm going to just, you know, strip you of all your abilities. That's just ridiculous. Are of courage. <laughs> We're all kinder now. Oh, that's terrifying. That's the, the, the untold consequence of being uh, immune to fear is you just start taking things from people. <laughs> you just start handling everything. The Oath of Devotion binds a paladin to the loftiest ideals of justice, virtue, and order. Sometimes called cavaliers, white knights, or holy warriors, these paladins meet the ideal of the knight in shining armor, acting with honor in pursuit of justice and the greater good. They hold themselves to the highest standards of conduct, and some, for better or worse, hold the rest of the world to the same standards. Many who swear this oath are devoted to gods of law and good, and use their gods' tenets as the measure of their devotion. They hold angels, the perfect servants of good, as their ideals and incorporate images of angelic wings into their helmets or coat of arms. All right, I don't like this one. This one bugs me. It reminds me too much of like, you know, super religious people that condemn you for not following their beliefs. <laughs> like you, you're just obligated because they believe it. So now you have to. I don't think so, Tim. Tenets of Devotion. 
Though the exact words and strictures of the oath of devotion vary, paladins of this oath share these tenets. Honesty. Don't lie or cheat. Let your word be your promise. Courage. Never fear to act, though caution is wise. Compassion. Aid others. Protect the weak and punish those who threaten them. Show mercy to your foes, but temperate with wisdom. Honor. Treat others with fairness, and let your honorable deeds be an example to them. Do as much good as possible while causing the least amount of harm. Duty. Be responsible for your actions and their consequences. Protect those entrusted to your care, and obey those who have just authority over you. Oath Spells. You gain Oath Spells as the Paladin levels listed. So you can see at 3rd, 5th, 9th, 13th, and 17th you get Spells. Channel Divinity. When you take this oath at third level, you gain the following two Channel Divinity options. Sacred Weapon. As an action, you can imbue one weapon that you're holding with positive energy using your Channel Divinity. For one minute, you add your Charisma modifier to attack rolls made with that weapon, with a minimum bonus of plus one. The weapon also emits bright light in a 20-foot radius and dim light 20 feet beyond that. If the weapon is not already magical, it becomes magical for the duration. You can end this effect on your turn as part of any other action. If you're no longer holding or carrying this weapon, or if you fall unconscious, this effect ends. Wait, so are there still Holy Avengers, the, the weapons? And like mounts that you have to quest for and stuff? That was what I loved about um, AD&D. Oh, there are? Cool, okay. Turn the Holy. As an action, you present your holy symbol and speak a prayer censuring fiends and undead using your channel divinity. Each fiend... Um, or undead that you can see or hear within 30 feet of you must make a wisdom saving throw. If the creature fails its saving throw, it's turned for one minute or until it takes damage. A turned creature must spend its turns trying to move as far away from you as it can, and it can't willingly move to a space within 30 feet of you. It also can't take reactions. For its action, it can use only the dash action or try to escape from an effect that prevents it from moving. If there's nowhere to move, the creature can use the dodge action. Aura of Devotion. Starting at 7th level, you and friendly creatures within 10 feet of you can't be charmed while you're conscious. At 18th level, the range of this aura increases to 30 feet. Purity of Spirit. Beginning at 15th level, you're always under the effects of a protection from evil and good spell. Holy Nimbus. <laughs> Holy Nimbus, Batman! At 20th level, as an action, you can emanate an aura of sunlight. For one minute, bright light shines from you in a 30-foot radius, and dim light shines 30 feet beyond that. Whenever an enemy, enemy creature starts its turn in the bright light, the creature takes 10 radiant damage. In addition for the duration, you have the advantage on saving throws against spells cast by fiends or undead. Once you use this feature, you can't use it again until you finish a long rest. Man, there's a lot of classes. Jeez. All right. In a way of speaking, you don't have to cure minor wounds, cure medium wounds, cure serious wounds. Instead, just cure wounds with a spell level affecting the amount. That's actually, I like that. That's actually a cool change of it. Let's see. Palins being forced to make others follow their alignment was a rule in previous editions, but not in 5e. Yeah, I mean, a lot of that has to... I was talking real world when I was mentioning that. But, yeah, a lot of that has to do with choosing the right classes for the party and players you're with. <laughs> like, you always have to consider the players and the other characters. Because some cases, like, you just can't have a black robe wizard with a paladin knight of Slamnia. It's just not going to work well. Holy Avengers exist. Getting the mount is via a spell. Oh, that's cool. You get a spell mount. I like that. Thanks for joining live, Letus. Okay. I don't know that I want to do this anymore. 
<laughs> I think I'm done for the night. I want to go uh, eat some dinner and hang out with the family. Thank you all for tuning in to this uh, Dragonlance reading. I really do appreciate your time and attention, but that is going to do it for this episode of Gaming Dungeons Dragons 5th Edition, reading the uh, basic rules that are free online that all of you can read on your own. So there's no real reason for me to do this at all. I'm just trying to learn the game. That's really all this is. What do you think of uh, Dungeons & Dragons 5th Edition gaming system? Is it too heroic and safe as a system for you? And would you ever run a Dungeons & Dragons 5th Edition game? Would you ever play in one of mine and let me try to kill you? <laughs> I actually don't play like that. But it does tend to happen, strangely enough. Anyway, feel free to email me at info at dlsaga.com or leave a comment below. I would like to remind you to subscribe to this YouTube channel, ring the bell to get notified about upcoming videos, and click the like button. This all goes to help other Dragonlance fans learn about this channel and its content. And this channel is all about celebrating the wonderful world of the Dragonlance Saga, and I thank you for joining me in the celebration. Thank you for watching as well. This has been Adam with Dragonlance Saga, and until next time, Slanjava!